Have you ever been asked to do something you weren't sure you could do? Not sure if you could manage? Not sure if you were the right person for the job? Maybe like Ross, one minute going to a Bible study is a joke and the next you're writing Bible studies. Do you think you could be the person to go and take Bibles to China? Once when I was in year seven, I was given the role of Willy Wonka in the school play for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I sort of wanted the role, but it was pretty scary and there were lots of lines. And then there was the time I got a gig on Humphrey. You laugh. I had a five-minute guest spot on Humphrey. Yes, the kids' show with a big cuddly bear. Like Humphrey, I didn't have to say a word. I just played my saxophone. Um, I was even asked afterwards, would you like to be a presenter? And then I did open my mouth and said, oh, maybe not. Um, it's interesting, last week as part of my Baptist um, application for full Baptist accreditation, uh, I have had to undergo a psychiatric or a psychological evaluation. And the result of one of those tests that I've done is that I need to develop more confidence in public speaking. I'm not sure how accurate some of that assessment's going to be, at least in that area, but that's the sort of things we have to do. Um, interesting. Some people like the spotlight, don't they? Some people relish it. They love being on stage. They love just um, being up front in front of everybody. Others not so happy. Others far more happy backstage or maybe even not on stage at all. And yet we're all called to play a part, aren't we? Part of church family, part of the world, part of our communities. As God's children, we're all called to play a part in life together in God's kingdom here on earth. And whatever part we play, whether it's big or small, uh, some people, you know, the old drama thing, there's no such thing as small parts, just small actors. But actually none of us are small. We've got all those images in the New Testament, don't we, where Paul talks about the body of Christ and every part is important, playing its role. Uh, So it's not about whether we play a big or small part or whether we're confident in ourselves or competent in our abilities, but who are we trusting as we go about what God's given us to do in our lives? And that's one of the truths I think that we learn in this, first, in this episode from 1 Samuel in the life of Saul, the first king. Israel's asked for a king back in chapter 8. Saul has been anointed by Samuel to be prince of Israel, the first king, in private. And the people, when they saw Saul come back from Samuel, remember he was looking for the donkeys, they've been found, but Saul's actually become a completely different person. The spirits rushed upon him. He starts prophesying and singing and dancing with all the prophets and the people can't believe who they're seeing. This is Saul. Really? They cannot believe their eyes. He's completely out of character. And he wasn't just putting on a show or play acting. He really had, as God told him, turned into another man because the spirits come upon him. But for that at that time, only Saul and Samuel know the true reason behind this transformation that people are seeing. But today, though, that secret is revealed to all of Israel. And Saul is publicly chosen by Lot and he's declared to be the inaugural king of Israel. And what sounds like and what should be really a huge moment for Israel. Think about it. This is the first time there's ever been a king appointed in the nation. It's the establishment of a whole new institution under God's covenant with his people. It's the first time and it's going to be an ongoing kingship. It actually should be an unforgettable moment. And we have got it here in scripture. But if you notice, by the end of the reading, it sort of fizzles out rather quickly. Everyone just goes home. It's like, oh, 
wasn't even much of a party or anything. And we've had most of the passage read for us, except for the scene with the Ammonites, um, where they're besieging Jabesh Gilead. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's just review some of what we have heard from chapter 10 first. It seems this new king, Saul, the first king of Israel, he himself is a little bit unsure about his role or whether he actually wants to take it up. He's not at all keen to appear in public, is he? Here he is being chosen by God and now chosen by Lot before all Israel. He knows what's about to happen, but he's found hiding in the baggage. Just like the donkeys last week, which were lost, they've been found and now Saul's lost and they had to go find him with the Lord's help. I wonder how big the lost and found box is in the, the, uh, the council uh, here. All the tribes are brought before Samuel. The, the tribe of Benjamin is chosen by Lot. Then Saul's clan within the Benjaminites are chosen. And then Saul himself is chosen, except when they seek him, verse 21, he cannot be found. At least the people this time, they do go to the right place to find what's been lost. They inquire of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And God tells them, we're not told how he says it, but God says he has hidden himself in the baggage. And it's meant to be funny. Here's Saul, we've heard earlier when he was first introduced, he's the biggest guy in all Israel. He's also the best looking fella in the land. He's been appointed through Samuel by God to be king. And here he is hiding in the baggage. He doesn't want to step up. He doesn't want to appear before the people. The people, the very man they've sought and want a king to stand before them and go out in a fight, when they finally get him, he's hiding. He doesn't want the job. Not the sort of man maybe you want as your first king. And yet he is the man that God has chosen for them. When they finally find him, they run to him and drag him out from among the baggage and they put him before all the people. And Samuel says, do you see him? Remember, in Samuel, not everything is about appearances. But do you see him? The one the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. Long live the king. Rejoicing. Great, we've got a king. It has been God who's chosen him, though, hasn't it? Even though it was done by the casting of lots, this is a divine appointment, as we heard last week. Even the casting of lots, which might sound like it's all by chance, even that, we read in Proverbs, is determined by the Lord. There's no match-fixing. There's no rigging of the ballot here. No, however the selection was taken by lot, in the biblical context, this is not left to chance. Proverbs 16 tells us, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Saul has been chosen by God, and when all the people finally set their eyes upon him, they say, long live the king. All except a few people who, uh, maybe disgruntled whatever reason, they do question Saul and his ability. We'll get to them in a moment. Some worthless fellows. They ask the question, how can this man save us? But everyone then goes home after Samuel says a few words. As I said, it all seems to fizzle out rather quickly. But it's interesting what happens next. But before we get to chapter 11, let's have a look at these worthless fellows. What's their problem? What's eating at them that they would question Saul? Maybe 
<laughs> we don't want a guy who hides himself in the baggage to be our king. We need someone who's going to stand up and be strong and courageous. Maybe, sounds fair enough. Maybe they reject the notion of a human king at all. They really want Yahweh to be their king. That's who he is. That's who Yahweh is. That's how we've lived up till now. Except they're not described as godly, sort of upright men, are they? They're described as worthless fellows. I actually think it's the complete opposite of that. They show no respect for the Lord and his anointed on this occasion. And I wonder if the very fact, the way that Samuel, do you notice what Samuel did? Samuel made it clear that this is, the, this is the one whom the Lord has chosen. And I think that's the very reason they despise Saul. You see, between the cry of long live the king in verse 24 and these disgruntled fellows, worthless fellows who question him in verse 27, what is it that Samuel has done? Samuel told all the people the rights and the duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Remember what God had commanded back in Deuteronomy 17? We've mentioned it a couple of times already. The Lord had already said back in the law, well before there was any notion of a king, well, the Lord knew there would be. And he told the people what the king shouldn't do, what he shouldn't take for himself, horses, men, wives, silver and gold. And what he should do, what he should take for himself is a copy of the law, the word of God, and write a copy out of it, a copy of it, and read it and learn from it so that he would not swerve to the right or left and that he and his children would live long in the land and reign in the land. And here is Samuel on Saul's behalf doing just that, writing down a copy of what is expected, the rights and duties of the kingship. He's reminding them of what God has said back in Deuteronomy 17. In other words, Samuel is publicly demonstrating that Saul, this new king that they want, rejecting the Lord, is actually a king who only reigns under the kingship of Yahweh. He only has his position and his power and his authority under the power and authority of God himself. And he's not to exercise his kingship in any other way. Next week, Saul makes, Samuel makes it abundantly clear as he reminds both the king and the people that they're to follow the Lord and his voice, not just the king's. I think if these worthless fellows are protesting against anything, I wonder if it's not this. That Saul is saying, your king that you want still actually lives and reigns only under the reign of God himself. They wanted a king like the other nations. Not one who's subject to God. They wanted one who would go out in battle himself before them. A human king who would judge them and who would fight for them. They wanted a man of action, not a man of prayer. They wanted a man in a position of authority, not one who was still subject to authority. And on this occasion, as most grumbling people do, no matter how quietly they may have grumbled, others have heard, haven't they? And they ask the question, how can this man save us? Could have caused quite a stir on this great occasion. But Saul says, no, I'll hold my peace. Let's just let him be. He could have made an example of him there and then, saying, no, I'm king and you'll do what I say. Doesn't seem to be his nature just yet. But for now, he holds his peace. But it is an interesting question, isn't it, that these worthless fellows raise? How can this man save us? And I wonder, in fact, if it's not a question Saul himself is asking on this occasion. 
me? Who am I, little old me, big as I am? How can I actually rule this people? Why is, not just how can I, but who am I? Why me? I haven't got any experience. No one can tell me what to do. I'm the first king, although God has given me instruction. But he's not too keen to step up into the role to begin with, is he? Still hiding in the baggage. The tallest, most handsome man of Israel, appointed by God, rushed upon by the Spirit, given three signs to confirm his calling, and then he's endorsed publicly here. And where do we find him? Hiding in the baggage. He's got an inferiority complex, we would say today. He's not, it's not just that he's afraid of showing himself or speaking in public, you know, the greatest fears, the fear of death and the fear... I don't think it's that. He's a big man, but he thinks too little of himself. And that's not just my assessment of Saul and the situation. In a few chapters' time, it's exactly what Samuel says to Saul. Samuel addresses this very problem with him because he not just his fear of showing himself in public, but his blatant disobedience to stepping up to what the Lord has called him to do and to be. And Samuel says to him in chapter 15, though you are little in your own eyes, remember he's the biggest guy in all the land, but in his own thinking, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Has not the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And we're going to learn in the coming weeks that so much of Saul's fear and the fact that Saul thinks little of himself is because, in fact, he thinks little of God. He has little regard for himself because he has little regard for God and what God has called him to do. He's been called by God, anointed by God. He's been blessed and enabled by God. He's been given the spirit of God. He's a new man. And yet still he won't step up. He's afraid to stand up, afraid to step up to the task at hand, not out of some godly humility. Oh, no, I could, could never do that. It's not that he's not wanting to take any glory, but it is because he has an inferiority complex. He thinks too little of himself. He's a man struggling with his identity, his God-given, his God-called identity. He's struggling with how he's meant to act in the very position the Lord has called him to. And if we're honest, I reckon we need to be fair to Saul. Because I reckon most of us have probably done the same at times. That'd be fair. I wonder if we don't all battle with something of those same struggles of identity, feeling little in a big situation, stepping up to what the Lord has called us to, struggling with confidence, afraid to take on responsibility, maybe afraid of getting it wrong, afraid of people thinking we're arrogant if we do, Australia's shocker. We are a shocker for how we deal with our leaders. We want really good leaders who will lead well and the minute they step up and do something, we think we'll pull them down. We'll criticise them. And I'm sure many of us have questioned if we ourselves are really up to whatever task it is the Lord has called us to be. Just being a mum or a dad, a student, a pastor, a teacher, police officer. I'm sure many of us have questioned if we're really up to what God has called us to do and to be in life, despite the fact he's blessed us and called us into those very things. Moses felt that way, didn't he? Not me, I can't even speak. And yet God's called him. 
Do you think Mary took it all in her stride, being the mother of our Lord? Her first son being conceived by the Holy Spirit. She needs encouragement. The first thing the angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Peter, the apostle, as bold as he was at times, he needed encouragement, didn't he? Needed some correction along the way too. Paul, he had no confidence issues when it came to public speaking, didn't he? More than happy to step up. But at times he too needed assurance not to be afraid and to go on proclaiming the gospel. And yet each of them and each of us are called to something, to be someone. Under God's covenant kingship and love. In that love. Under his fatherly care. Often I think we too find ourselves thinking too little of ourselves. And maybe even hiding in the baggage or somewhere else. In the back pews. No offence. Do we dare think the Lord might actually use us to achieve his purposes? Could he? And I'm not even talking about going to China and getting Bibles over the border. I'm just saying being faithful and obedient in the roles, in the positions, in the place of your own family and your work that you're in today. Could God use even the little things, the ordinary things we do to achieve his kingdom covenant purposes? He is, he does, and he will. And he might even call you to greater things than the little things. You see, stepping back and not doing anything, it's not a sign of humility, is it? It's a sign of fear, of thinking too little of ourselves and ultimately not thinking enough of God, thinking too little of God. You see, God himself doesn't actually think too little of us, does he? Psalm 8, what is man? Who are we that you're mindful of us? And then in Genesis with the Tower of Babel, what does the Lord say when the people are building this tower? Yes, it's all in the wrong name. They're trying to make a name for themselves. But what does God say about them? If they keep going this way, nothing is going to be impossible for them. We can achieve great things. And God actually has to restrain us if we're trying to do those things in our own strength and for our own glory. But God knows what we're capable of more so than we He's made us to be creative and competent and fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm not talking about being proud or being successful with what we do in life. You can actually be a humble person and do great things. You can be a humble person and be really successful. Because humility is not about not doing anything. It's about being faithful and obedient in what we've been given to do. And giving thanks and glory to the one who gives us all the ability to do that. And I want to encourage us this morning because he has called each and every one of us not to be a king like Saul, but we're all made in God's image, aren't we? And he's blessed us. He's given us a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill this earth and subdue it, to have dominion. There's a kingship element there for us all in creation. Let's not think too little of ourselves because if God has called us, he will do it. If God has blessed us and enabled us, he will make it happen. It's him working in us, not ourselves. In fact, Jesus said, what did he say? When I leave, you're going to do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. You're going to be filled with the Spirit. Romans 12, Paul urges us, having gifts that differ, don't you love the fact that as God's family, we're all so diverse? 
you know, we've got police officers, we've got teachers, we've got tradies, we've got... Isn't it great? And then within the church, within the body of Christ, we've all got these other gifts, diversity of gifts. And Paul says, whatever gift you've got, whatever different gift, according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In fact, if you've got a gift, use it. And then he goes on to explain how to use them. Whether you're a great leader or a successful business person, a teacher or a tradie or a techie, whether you're a really good barrister or a really good barista, I don't care. And I don't know if I got the spelling right for either of them, but you might be a stay-at-home mum or dad or you're a student finding your way through life and wondering what God's got ahead for you. God uses all kinds of people in all kinds of positions to bring about his divine purposes. And it's a wonderful thing to participate in what God's about in the world, in our families, in our workplaces. Being humble doesn't mean you can't do great things. Being a Christian doesn't mean you can't do great things. We need really good Christians. No, let me say it again. We need Christians who are really good at what they do. We need Christians who are really good police officers. Isn't it wonderful to hear that this morning? We need Christians who are really good mathematicians and scientists and engineers, really good athletes and lawyers and teachers and pastors and servants and CEOs and lawyers, public servants, that was meant to be, bus drivers and cooks, kitchen hands, so that in wherever we are, we can actually bear witness to the goodness and glory of God. So that whatever we do, we can do to his glory and we can do it well to his glory. So that when we're seen and commended for our good works, as we're told, actually other people will give glory to God. And the only way they'll do that is when we say, oh, thanks very much, I'm really grateful for what God's given me to do. Actually, when we bear testimony to the grace of God at work in us. Jesus said, let your light shine before others. And it's not, oh, let my good abilities, musical, athletic, it's not about that. It's about letting the light of Christ shine in whatever you do. So that when people see your good works, which we hear later have been prepared beforehand for us, others will give glory to God. And that will happen when we give thanks to God and give the glory to him for everything he's given us to do. And for all his faults, back to our text here, that's one thing that Saul does here in his first moment as a king. He gives thanks and glory to God. Yes, he seems to have this inferiority complex. He's thinking little of himself to begin with, but we do need to give credit where credit is due because the moment he steps up with these Ammonites who are knocking on the door at Jabesh Gilead, he gives thanks and glory to God, doesn't take the credit for himself. He says the Lord is the one who works salvation today. Let's take a look at that now. We missed the reading, but let's see what it is that changes this scaredy-cat Saul into a fearless, strong and strategic king, leading quite a mammoth army, really, into battle. Because anything of what I've just said, we cannot do any of it without the gift of God that Saul receives here. I said this great occasion, the inauguration of the first king, sort of ends with a fizzle. One of the reasons is because almost immediately straight after that in the text is there's a contest for kingship. This is actually a covenant competition almost. Uh, we could look into the whole nature of covenant here. Some of the words that are used are all to do, they're all covenant language. 
But straight away, the Lord's given Israel a king. And what happens? A king from another nation comes and actually contests that kingship, trying to take one of the tribes or one of the towns of Israel himself. Nahash, chapter 11, verse 1, The Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. That word treaty is a bit like a covenant. Hang on, we've got a covenant with Yahweh. We've got a covenant under Saul now. But if we make a treaty with you, because you're big and mean and you're pretty ruthless, we've heard about you. They've almost forgotten about Saul straight away. The fact that they've just asked for a king and they've got one who they've said will go out before us and fight our battles for us doesn't even figure in their thinking. They're ready to surrender before they've even thought about Saul. Maybe there's good reason for their fear, but not for their forgetfulness. This is what Nahash says. If they make a treaty on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you. I'll gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. If there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's where Saul is, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Okay, they're afraid, fair enough. They're up against a pretty mighty and ruthless enemy. There's one version of this passage found much later in the Dead Sea Scrolls which tells us a bit about the Ammonites and about Nahash the king. And just as he says here, he was known for actually gouging out the right eye of every man of any place that he defeated. Even if they surrendered, he was still going to do that. Why? To bring disgrace upon the people? Why the right eye? Think about it. You've got a right-handed swordsman with a shield in their left arm. They're almost useless for battle if they haven't got their right eye. Their left is blocked by the shield. Their right is where they need to see the peripheral vision and what's happening on this side. And without that, they've only got a very narrow scope of vision. Renders them useless as soldiers. So there's a ruthless king come to defeat them, come to besiege them. Even with a treaty, even if they surrender to him, he's still going to do that. So, okay, fair enough, there's a fair bit of fear. But Saul hasn't even figured in their thinking. And it's only the chapter before, it's only just happened. Either they don't have much confidence in Saul or they've already forgotten that he is actually a king in Israel. It's going to take them a little while to get used to the fact, maybe. One who would go out before them and fight for them. And it's only chapters ago that we heard about Ebenezer, remember the stone? Thus far the Lord has helped us. But straight away they're ready to surrender and not even seek the Lord's help. How quickly we forget to remember the Lord. And where is Saul in all of this? Still hiding in the baggage? There's a city in his new kingdom. About, he's being besieged. And that doesn't just happen in a day. It's probably about 80 kilometres away. But Saul's nowhere to be seen. In fact, he's out ploughing in the field with some oxen. The donkey searcher, the one who hides in the baggage, is out doing some farming. But as he comes in from the field, he hears the weeping of the people and asks what all the tears are about. And then he jumps into action. Let's pick it up again from verse 5. Behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. 
He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. We just sang about worshipping the Lord in one voice, didn't we? Finally, the big man, the king, has stepped up. He's found some courage. Rather than hiding in the baggage, he's now a man of action. But not before the Spirit of God has rushed upon him. Only as the Spirit of God rushes upon him does Saul act in any way. And on this occasion, it seems this is something of a temporary and timely anointing of strength and leadership, a little bit like uh, the mighty acts of Samson. The Spirit rushes upon Samson as judge and he can do these great, great things. And Saul calls the men of Israel to come. Interestingly, it includes Samuel's name there. Perhaps that's why they fear the Lord. I don't know if I'd approve of Saul's leadership style here. The way to rally up this army and, and all his followers is threaten them by cutting up his oxen and saying, if you don't come and follow me, I'm going, let's build our church. Hey, let's get a lot more people here by going out to all the coral and all the blackwoods, cutting up some little bits of animal and saying, if you don't come to church, not really the way to sort of get a following, is it? And yet we're told it wasn't the dread of Saul that came upon them, but the dread of the Lord. So the Lord's given him this to do. And 300,000 from Israel and another 30,000 from Judah come and join him. That's some army to rally up, isn't it? Here, at least, with the Spirit of God upon him, Saul is a man of action. Any inferiority complex, thinking little of himself, that's vanished. He is a different man. He doesn't shrink back here. He has stepped up and into the action. So much so, he sends the messengers off saying, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have salvation. That's pretty bold. How can this man save us? The people asked, a few of them. Well, we're about to find out. Off the messengers go, and they go back to Nahash, the king, about to gouge out their eyes and says, tomorrow we will give ourselves to you. Maybe behind that is tomorrow we'll actually come up against you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. What they didn't say was, we've got a king now and he's not only a good looking guy, he's a big fella, head and shoulders above the rest, and he's gathered 300,000 men to come and fight. And the battle itself, we're not given many details, only that Saul divided his troops into three, probably attacked them on the front and flanked them on the side, and barely left any of the Ammonites standing. Anyone who did survive... They're on their own. No two of them left standing together. It was a decisive victory. How can this man save us? These disgruntled fellows asked. Sometimes the best response to verbal threat or taunt is one of action, isn't it? And here Saul has demonstrated that he is a man who can save them. But not on his own. Not in his own strength. As he himself declares... Verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day, because some of the people said, hey, what about those that questioned you? You've just proved them wrong. Let's show them. Let's kill them. No, said Saul. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation. Today the Lord has worked salvation. Now, sadly, later, Saul's going to show us that when he doesn't act in accordance with the Lord and by the Spirit, He fails miserably. But on this occasion, 
with the Spirit of God, acting in the name of God and giving the glory to God, he's given victory. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Saul shows mercy too, doesn't he? Not just great victory, he shows mercy to these people, these disgruntled fellows who questioned him. It reminds me of Paul the Apostle when he says, I worked harder than anyone, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God at work in me. Friends, if we believe in Christ, then we've received the Spirit of God. God is dwelling in us, isn't he? We don't need to be little in our own eyes. We don't need to think little of ourselves or of God. He's infinite. He's the creator. And he's called us as his children. He's transformed us by the Spirit, given us a new heart. And as I said earlier, he's given us good works to do, prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Not by our strength, but by the Spirit. And there is no such thing as a small act of faith or hope or love. They're eternal works. It's not the size of our strength or how competent we are or how confident we are. It's the size of our God. And we have a God who is great, as we sing, and does marvellous deeds. And he actually does much of them through us. Little old us, who are not so little in the name of Christ. And I'm sure at times we've doubted the Lord's power. Maybe we've questioned, how can God save me? How can Jesus, how can this man save me from my sin, my weakness, my failures? And Saul's giving us a glimpse here, isn't he, of the great true king of Christ, who actually shows mercy to those who question him. And he brings salvation to us. Even as we're enemies, even as we're questioning him in our weakness and sin. He rescues us. Saul here is merciful, he's victorious, but he's giving us a glimpse into Christ who's merciful and victorious, isn't he? Disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them, and showing mercy to those who question him. It's the Lord himself who works salvation here for Saul, for Israel, but he works salvation for us too, doesn't he? Every day. And in the joy of that salvation, in the joy of the Spirit, we're called to be strong, to stand firm, to pray in Christ, to stand in the Spirit, in the strength of his might. And actually in what the world sees as weakness, we actually stand in the divine power of the cross in our day, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, where it can be very messy where there is a fierce battle at times. But there we are to stand in the Lord's strength and know that he will bring salvation. God can turn the scariest of cats into the fiercest of raging lions, but he can also tame the fiercest of lions who try to do it in their own strength. Either way, it's the Lord who works salvation and he is working in you and me and in all of us together both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful that you are our King. We've sung that. We declare it. We submit to you and your Son and your Spirit as Lord. And yet at times, like some of the folk here did with Saul, we question how you can rescue us from our troubles. Father, we're so grateful for your mercy and for your might. But most of all, Father, how you've shown that through the weakness of the cross. What seems to be weak and foolish is actually the wisdom and power of yours. And so, Father, in Christ we stand. And we can stand in Christ. And you filled us with your spirit that we might walk by faith. And Father, we ask that through us you would do these great works that you've promised. You would help us to see the good works you've given us to walk in. Not to merit our own salvation or righteousness, but simply because we are your children, because you have saved us. And so that, Father, we would give glory to you and many others would glorify your name. So keep us humble, we pray, Father. But in that humility, we pray you would help us not to think little of ourselves or little of you. But to see the great things you are doing in this world, in your kingdom, in all eternity, through your Son and by your Spirit, and through your church, through us. And keep us, Father, encouraging one another in these things, in faith and hope and love, not trying to do them in our own strength. Keep us from that, we pray, but not sitting back and doing nothing either. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.